Hello, beautiful people. Engagement looks good on you. Thanks for joining us here on The Brief, our weekly show about politics at Daily Coast. We are happy to have you. And I may not be feeling my best, but we have one of the best with us today, Tim Miller. Uh, Tim Miller uh, writes over at The Bulwark, right, which is really a bunch of anti-Trumpers, disaffected Republicans who are like, this isn't the party that I came up in and that I you know, have been working for. And we are going to get Tim's perspective on some of what we have seen in Iowa and what we might see in New Hampshire. We are recording this on, on Monday. We're pre-recording it. But a lot of you will be listening to this on Wednesday. You will know the New Hampshire results before we have them. But what we're talking about here is kind of assuming that Trump, Donald Trump, becomes the nominee for the Republican Party. What kind of cracks there are in his coalition? He may be dominant in the Republican Party, but what can Democrats exploit? What kind of voters can they appeal to in order to join an anti-Trump, pro-democracy coalition and, you know, put together, sort of reassemble what Joe Biden did in 2020 to once again, you know, God is willing, save this democracy and reelect President Biden over a GOP takeover of the White House. So um, Tim Miller is, just so you guys know, first of all, he is the host of the Next Level podcast at the Bulwark. I am a religious listener of a lot of Bulwark stuff. The Next Level is one of them. Um, the Focus Group podcast from my friend, uh, longtime friend there, Sarah Longwell. So uh, I encourage you, if you're at all, if you can stand listening to what's going on in the Republican Party. Also, they're very funny about it. I have to say, there's a humor. There's also some lament because, you know, this isn't the party they want it to be. But uh, their friend there, JVL, kind of cracks me up when he talks about, um, he almost sounds like a liberal sometimes when he talks about Trumpers. Um, So, and uh, also Tim Miller is here because he has worked on numerous campaigns, including presidential campaigns in Iowa and New Hampshire. And, you know, uh, John McCain being one of them, he's usually uh, in a director of communications capacity. John Huntsman being another one. Um, There's more, but you get the idea. Um, He worked for Jeb, uh, Jeb Bush. And so uh, he is going to inform what we're doing today. Tim, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks, Carrie. Happy to do it. Thanks for listening to our struggle sessions over at the Bulwark, you know? I mean, sometimes they are depressing, I'm going to say. <laughs> but sometimes, sometimes, I mean, Sarah Longwell is a silver linings optimist like I am. And so it's, I can, I can groove with her. JVL makes me laugh and you never pull a punch. So all of it is like listenable to me, even though we're talking about the Republican Party, right? And you're all like, all of these establishment losers who have basically gifted the party to Trump, like that just ticks you off. And it ticks me off too, frankly. Um, but let's get into Iowa. I heard you say something on the next level that I thought was interesting. And that is, let's just paint a picture of what the electorate looked like. We all know that Trump won that by 51%. Ron DeSantis, I think, came in second, 21%. A close third for Nikki Haley, 19%. Um, Ron DeSantis has already dropped out. Anyone living under a rock now um, over the weekend, he dropped out. He will not be participating in New Hampshire. Most of you probably know that. 
But in any case, this comes down now to a a race between Donald Trump and Nikki Haley for as long as she can possibly stay in. Um, It looks like, you know, Trump may run the board on this. But in Iowa, um, we have an electorate that we can look at. And there was significant decrease in turnout, right? There were 110,000 caucusers. And that's a drop off from 2016 when there were around 187,000 caucusers. Now, there were sub-sub-zero temperatures, there were blizzards, there were lots of reasons not to turn out weather-wise. But still, there's also the notion that Trump didn't seem to expand the electorate, okay? It's not like he turned out, it's seemingly new voters that we've never seen before who were really excited about him. He turned out voters who were really excited about him, but it didn't seem like it was an expanded electorate. It's possible that instead he has called down the GOP electorate to a smaller, like more right wing group of people. That may not be true. Tim can tell me if if that's total hopium on my part. But there were some interesting things. So Tim was talking about on the on the bulwark on the next level. He was talking about how there were a few counties that he was looking at for college educated voters that would normally turn out in a Republican caucus and would have would have probably swung it for Nikki Haley. She only won one county in Iowa and Trump won what? The other, the other 98, Tim, is that right? Uh, yes. And he won the one that Nikki won. She won by a single vote. And uh, we had a Democrat bulwark listener message us that they live in Johnson County and they crossed over to vote for Nikki as an anti-Trump thing. So uh, it's barely a victory if you're winning on the back of <laughs> Democrats giving you pity votes. But uh, yeah, that was her uh, that was her one one county victory. Johnson's where I, University of Iowa is. OK, so you were, you know, as a as a sort of veteran campaign operative there, you saw several of these counties where you're like, gosh, I've seen these counties before have higher college educated mix or they were counties that you thought profile wise would have gone for Nikki. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, well, first, I just want to say to your point about the turnout, uh, it is noteworthy. I mean, uh, of course, it was cold. And so some of it is related to that. But 70,000 plus voters, fewer is really significant. And it's especially significant when you consider that part of Trump's case is that he's bringing in new voters to the to the process, both the primary and the general election, right? So that the offset of the college educated voters I'm about to talk about, that, that those going away are offset by new voters that are brought in by him that are mostly non-college, you know, were maybe out of disaffected by the whole political system. Maybe there are Perot voters or Buchanan voters or, or young voters that, that don't identify with either party and that he was supposed to be bringing those folks in. I mean, if that's true, there wasn't any evidence of it so far, um, you know, based on the raw vote total. So I think that's interesting and something to maybe we can put a pin in and come back to when thinking about the general election. As far as the college vote, I wanted to pull up here uh, the counties I'm talking about, the 2016 counties that Marco Rubio won. So that was where I would profile and say, hey, that, that those seem likely to be Nikki Haley counties, right? Rubio won them in 2016. They're higher percentage of college educated voters, higher percentage of these kind of suburban, you know, Chamber of Commerce Republican types. The three right in the middle of the state, Polk County, where Des Moines is, 
Dallas County, um, which is kind of the Des Moines suburbs, basically, uh, to the west of Des Moines, and then Story County, north of Des Moines, that's where you know, Iowa State University is, so where Ames, Iowa is. So Trump wins all of those counties that Marco won. Marco won in Polk, for example, um, kind of narrowly, 26, 25, 21, Cruz got 25. Dallas was the one I was really looking at because this is the big suburban Des Moines County. Rubio won there 34% to Trump's 20. So Rubio beats him pretty handily, you know, and the vote total, I'm just doing quick math on a podcast, which you're not supposed to do. Uh, no, we love but, that. Yeah, we love that. Yeah, you know, but about 6,000 people turned out versus the Jets. So there's fewer people turn out in Dallas County. Trump ends up winning over in Haley by 12. So total flip in, right. the, in the share of vote, Trump wins, you know, a greater share. Uh, but, but also the raw number of people in the county that turned out is down. And, and so I just think that is a really... To me, that was the flashing red flag right. for the Republicans generally, for Nikki Haley's hopes, um, for both of those things, right? Like I had my eye on Dallas as when the results were coming in as kind of a, a sense. I, I knew Trump was going to win Iowa, but just a sense for how big it was going to be. And he w- ends up winning Dallas. I, I think, A, that's good for him in the primary. But getting it to the general, I, it just speaks to the fact that these voters that have been leaving the Republican Party consistently, going back to 2016, and then again in the 18 midterms, and then again in 20, they voted for Biden, and then again in 2022, when they fought off the supposed red wave that was coming. Like These voters are continuing to move away from Republicans. And if you looked at the 2020 Democratic primary in Iowa, like this was the big comparison for me. There was a huge surge in Dallas County. In, the, in, in turnout, like the, uh, I think it was the kind of the greatest increase in turnout between the 2020 Democratic primary and, and the 2016 Bernie versus Hillary primary or caucus, excuse me. And, and that was because a lot of these suburban voters that have been independent swing voters that have been kind of soft Republicans, they like didn't see themselves in the party of Trump anymore. And they, they identified more as Democrats. They basically flipped parties. So they went and caucused for, you know, some Pete wins um, Dallas County. So a lot of them caucus for Pete, but also for some of the other candidates. And, and I think that that is just kind of a microcosm of the problem that Republicans are going to face when you get into, now Iowa's not going to be a swing state, but when you get into Wisconsin and the Milwaukee burbs or the Detroit burbs or the Atlanta or Phoenix burbs, right? Um, uh, It it continues to be a sign that there's weakness there in the Republican coalition. Right, right. So, and just to put a finer point on that, I mean, just because we ran through those numbers quickly when you're listening, sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's a little rough, but that's about a 30 point, switch in direction between uh, a net 30 point shift between what Rubio did in 2016 and then Trump winning Dallas County. We're talking about Dallas County here in last week's caucus. So it's roughly a 30 point shift. And then, of course, you have this decreased turnout. So, you know, I, I just I listened to you talk about that. And I was like, God, this is it's almost like instead of bringing out more voters, it just seems like he's calling down the Republican electorate to a more Trumpy, harder right, but not more expansive group of people. Again, with the footnote, the asterisk, right, that this was a, I think it was like negative 30 or something. I mean, it was like bad news. It was bad news. That being said, I would think, for instance, that, um, that if it was that bad, there would have been fewer older voters. And that wasn't true. Like, I don't know the actual numbers, but I do know for sure 
that the GOP electorate on that night in Iowa was older, more male, and a few other things like less college educated than it had been um, previous, right? So, and I and the the makeup of let's just look at gender for just one second. It was a fifty six percent male electorate in that caucus. That's a that's a that's a lot of men. I know that. So, for instance, when most pollsters wait for gender, they usually wait for more women to turn out for 52%, typically 52% of women, 48% of men. That's in a, like a national poll, right? Um, that's That may not be exactly right. Um, I think uh, I think our producer looked at it before this. It may have been, was it 2020, Walter? I'm t- talking to Walter. He's talking. He's going to, it's 2016. 2016, Walter looked it up. Our producer, Walter Einenkel, thank you, Walter, that uh, there were 50, that 52% male turnout in that caucus in Iowa. So 56% male means that you're, get, you're getting a lot fewer women and you're getting a lot more men in that electorate. Okay. There was also increased um, number of people over the age of 65, et cetera. You go down the line. Yeah. So um, anyway, I don't know if you want to add anything to that or we can. Well, no, I, th- I just think that it's, again, it's just one caucus. And I don't know that, that we're going to learn a ton from New Hampshire on this point on total voters, just because there's no Democratic uh, primary and undeclared voters can vote on either side. We could talk more about that. So, I, you know, I think we can learn more as things go on. But I think it's unassailable that the the drop in college educated suburban voters is not being offset by the increase in non-college, you know, more rural or kind of small town or exurban voters. Like that, there just isn't evidence of that to date. And so I, I think that that is both true, that the makeup of the Republican Party is changing. Uh, it's intentional, by the way. I, you know, there's, uh, I was so white that we can't, we're not going to learn a lot about this yet. So is New Hampshire. But, you know, Matt Gates very explicitly made this argument in, in, in the douchiest Matt Gaetzy way possible um, in the pa- uh, past week or so when he said that, you know, for every Karen that we're losing, we're replacing them with a Jamal or a Julio. And it's like his argument is that that non-college black and Latino voters are going to come into the Republican coalition. That's very aspirational. I think there are a lot of potential problems with that. Um, but, I, you know, that's how they see it. And so, you know, like it's not this isn't even democratic hopium and wish casting. <laughs> this is like Matt Gates saying this, like we are losing even more college educated suburban women. And every time you think that they're at the kind of floor of how many they can get, like the numbers keep getting worse. So I think that that's noteworthy. The one other thing I think was noteworthy about Iowa, uh, about this this group is that among the small percentage of people that did turn out for Nikki Haley, who are college educated in these counties, uh, which was obviously not enough to win anything anywhere, um, their opinion of Trump was really bad. And I, and I expect, you know, you expect them to not love Trump, right? That's why they're voting for Nikki Haley. But if you look at the numbers and different, there are different polls that different things. Uh, one of the entry polls had, I think, 35% of them, of, of total Iowa caucus goers saying that they wouldn't vote for Trump if he was convicted. Um, uh, one of the pre polls said that there are 11% of, of likely caucus goers that said that they would not vote for Trump. Um, just on the qualitative side, from the focus groups that Sarah does and just listening to reporters who were who at Nikki Haley events. Many people anecdotally at these events saying that they can't vote for Trump, they might vote for Biden. And so I think that was the other 
encouraging sign for for Democrats that not just was that college educated number uh, who turned out down among those who did turn out, they seem to be gettable general election voters uh, for Democrats, at least some percentage of them. Yeah, this is something we spent just a little bit of time on last week. But, um, you know, the the Seltzer poll, the Ann Seltzer poll that came out just in advance of that uh, caucus. And, and we've talked about she's like sort of the polling guru of Iowa. Um, she was she was pretty much spot on. But one thing she said was she found was that 41 percent of Haley supporters said that they would vote for Biden if Trump became the nominee in that poll. So that's, you know, that's. That's the silver lining for sure, uh, undoubtedly. Um, okay, so we're going to move on to New Hampshire here. We don't know the results yet. And, you know, Ron DeSantis dropped out over the weekend. Uh, seems pretty clear that, like, most of his voters seem in the mold of Trump. It looks like from the most recent polling that Trump is hovering around 50%, a little more. Um, Haley is somewhere in the mid to high 30s. I mean, without like just a major, major last minute shift, it looks like Trump will win this. And like I said before, run the board. I've always advocated for the longer Nikki Haley stays in, the better, because she is doing things like not as much as Democrats and progressives want, but she is doing things like talking about you know, Trump and his cognitive issues and how we don't want two 80 year olds, you know, comparing Trump and Biden. We don't want two 80 year olds running. And I think the more Republican independents and, you know, soft Republicans who could be convinced to vote against Trump, um, the more they get that message, the better. Um, I'm afraid that if she loses New Hampshire, she's toast. And um, I would love to see her hang on uh, for Super Tuesday, because I think the more that message gets out from a, you know, from a actually traditionally conservative Republican, the better. Um, It's better for us to have a conservative Republican, an establishment Republican of of the, you know, days of old, making that case to her own people. But in any case, one thing to look for, and I'm just going to, I want to ask Tim what he's looking for. Um, with this eye towards, you know, Trump's potential weaknesses, right? Uh, but one thing to look for is the the New Hampshire primary is going to be very, very different. It's a h- much more highly college-educated state than Iowa is, number one. It's a much more, it has a much more libertarian uh, streak to it rather than this, like, highly evangelical streak that Iowa does. Um, and there's unaffiliated voters that can pull um, either they can pull a ballot either from the Democratic side yeah. or the Republican side. Okay, so they're essentially they're registered as independents. They're called unaffiliated there, but they're registered as independents essentially. And you have to go back if you go back to 2012. I think that was the last time that we had a Republican primary where there wasn't a, a Democratic primary happening because uh, Obama was it at that point. But there were 49% of the electorate in New Hampshire was independent in that Republican primary. So, you know, I'm kind of wondering, like, are we going to see a surge in independent voters, meaning there's like, you know, some 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 soft Republicans, but also maybe some Democrats and, you know, more indies are like, no way. Like you listen to these focus groups and people are really clear 
about what they're doing. I listened to some of yours, Tim, on the bulwark. I listened to some of NPR's um, people, yeah. you know, like man on the street interviews that they did with independents. And they know why they're casting a vote in the Republican prime. The anti-Trumpers know why they're casting a vote and to try to save democracy. I mean, they are like seem crystal yeah. clear about what they're doing. So anyway, what are you looking for um, in this primary that you think would be interesting um, from the standpoint of either general election or maybe, you know, what it tells you about the Republican Party? Yeah, I, so we'll know the answer. So I'm not going to speculate on how many how many of these folks turn out because what, what's the point about being wrong? Um, but here's what I do know is that the types of these voters that you're talking about that we hear from in board focus groups that you hear from when you're on the trail in New Hampshire, these very highly engaged, college-educated, New England moderates, sometimes New England liberals even, really, who are undeclared, who have this independent streak, and, and they're used to these candidates coming to New Hampshire, and they're used to picking a ballot. Sometimes they go Democrat, sometimes they go Republican, they do strategic voting. The, to the extent that Nikki does well in in the New Hampshire primary, it's gonna be on the back of these voters. And so the problem with that is that these voters don't exist anywhere else. <laughs> like it's a uniquely New Hampshire phenomenon in part because of the rules of New Hampshire that let people that are, are very li uh, liberal and allowing people to vote uh, in either side, um, which is not true. A lot of other states are more restrictive, but it's also just true in th this like this culture that you're talking about of strategic voting of, oh, I'm going to, I might vote for Joe Biden in the general election, but I'm going to vote for Nikki because I don't like Donald Trump. Like some of those people exist in other states, but they don't exist at scale in the way that they do in New Hampshire. And so winning or doing well can give her a boost. Can I just, but, can I just say that they don't exist at scale in the Republican party, right? This is what you're, this is the case you're making. Yeah. 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 Yes. yeah. Okay. Exactly. Just to be, just to be clear. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. there are a bunch of strategic voters in the democratic primary. Uh, right. We saw that in 2020, right? Like the people right. that were jumping from, from Warren to then they're like, oh, she's not electable. I'm going to go for Pete. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Warren, he's not electable. And I'm going to Amy. And then but it's like, oh, I'm going to go to Biden. Like, like the people were jumping around last time because they were so engaged and educated and they were doing strategic voting on the, like, that's not, those people don't exist in the Republican electorate. And the reason why that they exist in New Hampshire is because New Hampshire allows a lot of people that are like functionally Democrats to vote in the Republican primary, right? Um, and then there are a handful of soft Republicans. Like, again, it's not like there's zero of these people in the Republican primary, but they just, they don't exist at scale. So to win Republican voters, you need to do well with with Republicans, with rank and file Republicans. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, kind of obvious, I guess, <laughs> but sometimes it needs to be said. And so Nikki would need to springboard a successful New Hampshire uh, performance into getting a second look from, you know, those more rank and file Republicans. I just, I, f I, f I find that hard to believe no matter whether she wins or not. So anyway, as far as general election, the question then becomes very similar to Iowa is among the people that vote for Nikki, they now become the general election swing population, right? And so they, they become very important. And so what Nikki says to them about Trump matters. That's why I'm going to be very upset when she eventually endorses Trump. Um, but also what other people who they respect and trust matters, right? Because the Nikki voters are going to be gettable for Joe Biden um, or, the, and, and, or they might be gettable for a, a no label stick or whatever. That's why the third party thing is so dangerous. Um, and so I, that, I think that this is, a meaningful exercise 
you know, for the Biden team, right, to model, okay, who, and to see, like, where, where is she especially strong? Like, what parts of the state of New Hampshire, what counties, like, what message, right? And now we, they kind of have a universe now of people that can be like, okay, now we know who we're going to need to go get. And so I, I think it's more meaningful in that general election sense than, than, have, than this having any staying power for her as you get to more red states. Right. I mean, you know, her her best case is that she wins New Hampshire and then suddenly people are like, whoa, wait a second. Maybe, you know, Trump isn't right. as dominant and then she can go to her home state and eke out some sort of like, you know, uh, some sort of respectable um, contest against uh, Trump in in South Carolina. Um, so anyway, I, it seems unlikely. But we don't again, to your point, we don't need to guess because just for the sake of being wrong. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so yeah, so it's not sustainable in the Republican Party, but it is a meaningful exercise in terms of the Democratic Party. And for Team Biden, what messages work? How many of these people seem to be in the offing? You know, she has been hitting Trump on adding eight trillion to the debt. She has been hitting him on being too old. She's been pushing a cognitive test, um, which is driving Trump nuts. Um, but for, I think anyone over 75 or something like that, she's been pushing like for, you know, we should have cognitive tests or something like that, I think. But the other thing is, is that most recently Trump did this whole like meandering thing during one of his rallies, because that's what he does, where he confused Nikki Haley and Nancy Pelosi. And he was talking about January 6th and he said Nikki Haley's name. It wasn't like once, you know, sometimes someone will like people will mix up Obama and Biden once because it's it's got it's a b you know it's got that b in there it's really kind of easy to do i've heard a lot of people do that i think i've done it myself but nikki haley and nancy pelosi do not sound alike and he was talking about january 6 trump um oh, i think it was over the weekend at a rally and uh, maybe maybe on friday and um it was in new hampshire and he was like talking about how nancy pelosi you know i mean this is among his many like falsehoods and disinformation that he's spreading but nancy pelosi was in charge of security at um capitol hill and she couldn't get it done and you know she couldn't get the forces there whatever he was saying something some something about january 6th the you know, violent, deadly riot that he incited himself. Um, So it was her fault in his telling. But instead of using Nancy Pelosi's name, he cited Nikki Haley like five times. Um, So it wasn't just one slip. So then Nikki Haley is like, yeah, I mean, we got a problem here because you you, you can't have, you know, the president of the United States, you can't be questioning their cognitive abilities because Trump can't seem to tell the difference between me and Nancy Pelosi. So anyways, there are like meaningful arguments to be had against Trump that could give a soft Republican voter a, you know, a a reason to have a second look. Anyway, Tim, you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I mean, I don't, Nikki Haley's arguments are kind of bank shots because she doesn't want to anger Trump voters. So I think there's a much more aggressive way to make the same arguments that Nikki Haley is making and appeal to to some of these Republican voters. I think that's the most encouraging thing about the results so far is just that her voters definitely seem open to anti-Trump arguments and, and open to Biden, at least at least some percentage of them. Um, and so, I, you know, to me personally, uh, there's like Democrats, and liberals get like some satisfaction out of like the Trump has dementia too arguments, uh, you know, which I, I don't, I just don't like. And I, I understand why it is like there's frustration that the media, 
you know, obsesses over Joe Biden's age and doesn't talk about Donald Trump's age as much. And so it's it's like feels good to be like, no, Donald Trump is old. He's forgetting he's mixing up people's names. And he's also old. Uh, But to me, I just part of the reason why that doesn't get talked about as much is because there are so many other more compelling arguments against Trump. Right. And and so I just I, I just because it's like emotionally gratifying, I guess that would be my one caution to my friends on the left, like just because it's emotionally gratifying to be like Trump has dementia. Like stop talking about Joe Biden Like does not necessarily mean that's going to be the most persuasive argument to these voters that you need to get. Um, and, and Biden's going to have a few different categories of voters that he wants to get, right? He's, he's going to want to turn out base voters um, and, and he's going to want to try to get some of the old Obama Trump voters back. Uh, but the ones that I'm always focused on is, you know, your Mitt Romney, Joe Biden voter, like your college educated suburban voter, the husband of a of a, of a woman that, uh, you know, they used to both be Republicans and she voted for Hillary and Biden has been nagging him about it for nine years. And it's been like, I can't believe you. I'm going to fucking divorce you if you vote for this person again. Like that, that guy, that college educated guy in Atlanta. Um, there are really compelling arguments to reach those voters uh, if you're the Biden campaign. And so, and, and Nikki hits on some of them, but I, you know, I think that that to me, that may, maybe that Trump, but, Trump being old isn't the best one. Yeah. Well, my guess is, is that by the Biden campaign will not ever make that argument because they do not want to bring any attention, but to the extent that someone like Nikki Haley as an outside messenger sure. can help neutralize it. I think that I like, I do think progressive find it satisfying. Like, he's, yeah. you know, he doesn't seem right. And on a lot of levels, Trump doesn't. No, seem he right, does not right. seem right. We can right? agree on that. So uh, to have a to have an establishment Republican, you know, other than like, of course, like, you know, McC- anytime McConnell gets a chance to say that, you know, Trump isn't right or there's something wrong with him, except for like that brief window, at, uh, you know, after he voted to um, to acquit Trump in the impeachment trial and then said he's morally responsible, you know, for this, whatever, you know, people like that, they never say it, <clears throat> especially McConnell. I can't, don't get me going on McConnell because I can't stand the guy and his, you know, his feckless leadership has just been um horrendous for the whole country. And he could have put this to bed, um, you know, just after January 6th, but he blinked, he missed that opportunity. Um, so anyway, um, but yes, you are right. Um, and I don't think that progressives are going to, uh, or at least the Biden campaign, I'm sure they won't focus on age because they don't want to focus on age. And to your point, they can focus on freedom. They can focus on abortion, uh, reproductive rights access, democracy, January 6th, blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on. It all falls under the rubric of freedoms and protecting your freedoms. And I think that's where they will go. It's already seems to be where they are. Um, Anyway, but for now, thank you so much, Tim, for coming on. Tim is on the East Coast and he's taking a little time out. He's doing some, I don't know. He's like on the ground there. Watch there? out. You got to watch yeah. out. I am going to be on the ground in, in South Carolina for the what I expect to be Nikki's demise. But no, I did not go to New Hampshire this time. I'm in D.C. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm working on another secret project, which maybe I'll come back on and discuss another time about what's wow. happening in the MAGA movement. And I'm doing some some interviews while I'm in town. You, you heard it here. Secret project. Oh, this reminds me. Let me just ask one. Do you have just two minutes? Do you have yeah, two sure. minutes? OK, so Liz Cheney last week. She said something that I don't think I've heard her say yet about a potential third party. She wasn't talking about in this cycle. It seemed like she was saying, look, if, you know, Trump, if Trump's the nominee, I can't, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but she was, it seemed like she was essentially saying like if the Republican party, we may not be able to it, resurrect it. 
the way it exists at this moment. Do you think there's anything to that? I mean, is there, do you, I mean. I, well, look, I think we've undergone, we could do a whole podcast of this topic. So my brief take is we've undergone a realignment and in a weird way, a lot of like the, the people who are political experts and elites in DC are behind what is that, what voters have already decided for them, right? And, and a lot of people that are in the Liz Cheney mold uh, have left the Republican Party, and some consider themselves independents, some consider themselves conservative Democrats, um, but they've left, and, and, and new people have moved into the Republican Party because they've opted in. And so, yeah, I think it's changed the makeup of the party at the voter level. Um, and in theory, could that, uh, look, there's, it's never good money to bet on a third party. In theory, could the Liz Cheney's of the world coalesce in, into another type of organization? Maybe, um, but it would have to be, you know, a lot has to happen between now and then, I guess, right? And right now, I think the natural allies on this stuff are, are Joe Biden and, and the Democratic Party. But, you know, I, I think that our, our realignment is ongoing and, and Liz is kind of just coming around. She's going to, she's trying to get to the acceptance phase. I was going to say, of, uh, gonna say it sounds a little bit like she's going through the stages of grief here, yeah. but um, anyway, and no, to, to Tim's point, we do not want a third party before uh, we, I mean, the biggest threat to our democracy in November is a third party candidate. Okay. So thank you so much, Tim Miller. You can find him um, at the Bulwark. You can find his writing at some point, this secret project you heard it here first. Um, he's reporting on is uh, is going to be out. I have no idea what it is, but it'll be good, I'm sure. Um, and uh, you can listen to him at the Next Level podcast um, at the Bulwark. And I, I, you know, it's entertaining. It's entertaining, even for progressives. Tim Miller, Sarah Longwell, JV Last, who I do not know personally, but I like I laugh out loud regularly at his depiction of Trump voters. So anyway. Um, <laughs> Thank you for coming on. Thank you for all the listeners here. Engagement for all of us is key. We appreciate you listening, staying informed. We have to figure out how to reassemble this coalition for November, save our democracy. It can be done. There are reasons to be hopeful for doing that despite Trump's extreme dominance of the Republican Party. So we will be the happy warriors on that journey. Thanks for joining us. And we will catch you next week. Uh, have a good week. Have a good week.